Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. We're headed to a space where net zero transition, low carbon economy has become a force that is generating a lot of capital. For many companies, embracing ESG might feel like a burden, but in reality, it's an opportunity. ESG goes where the money goes, and it's already heading to that kind of a future where companies, as well as investors, are looking for more sustainability, more responsibility, and in Larry Fink's kind of term, he calls it stakeholder capitalism. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Increasingly, ESG is a hot-button issue for almost all companies, public and private. Conversations around environmental and social issues have been building for over a decade, and they've moved to center stage in the 2020s. The bottom line is ESG is not a nice-to-have anymore. It's a must-have in terms of attracting capital. Here to demystify the ESG movement is Lyndon Park, head of ICR's Governance Advisory Group. Lyndon is a recognized thought leader in ESG and shareholder activism and began his career in governance at BlackRock, where he supported their board of directors on intracompany governance matters. He's truly an expert in the field, and he and his group at ICR do exceptional work advising boards and management teams on some really complex stuff. I talked to Lyndon about how ESG plays into investment strategies, how companies can navigate shifting rating standards, and why both private and public companies should be looking around the corner and preparing for what's next in the world of ESG. Let's enter the arena with Lyndon Park. I did indeed have a kind of an interesting route to governance in ESG. You know, like most people, I didn't really have an understanding of what that was. Back in 2008, when I was still kind of a schlep at a law firm, you know, was looking for something different to do and entered into Google, you know, corporate legal jobs in New York City and BlackRock came up and I said, huh, Blackstone, let's just apply. I didn't even know, couldn't distinguish BlackRock from Blackstone. And that kind of goes to show even, you know, as recent as, you know, 2008, which is not a forever time ago. BlackRock was still an unknown company. This was pre-iShares, you know, pre-articulation on ESG. I kind of went into it and fell into the good fortune of actually going into the corporate secretary's office at BlackRock. My day job was supporting BlackRock's board of directors, 
getting yelled at by Larry Fink. So, you know, I really learned how to do governance from inside the house, from executive compensation matters for Section 16 officers and directors, looking at palas and charters, you know, all these sort of nitty-gritty sausage-making I did inside the house. And it was only after um, having served as an assistant secretary of BlackRock Entities, you know, I transitioned over to the stewardship side. That's what people call it now, which means... I was in charge of several sectors there. I was I, I was the head of financial, healthcare, insurance industries, as well as biotech and some other industries, which meant um, you know I was essentially overseeing portfolio companies, you know, and their governance practices and ESG, representing around four hundred fifty billion of BlackRock's AUM back then. That's when. ESG was still nascent, to be honest. You know, even at BlackRock, when I was setting their policies there, it was more centered around risk factors like cybersecurity. What are some of these things that keeps uh, board and management up at night rather than anything more programmatic? In addition, that's kind of when activism was ascendant. So, you know, with the shareholder activism, hedge fund activism ramping up, you know, companies, their board seats being attacked and takeovers kind of running up. What we did at BlackRock, given the accumulating voting power that this company had over many companies, our voice became very, very important. And, you know, I just kind of caught the right wave at the right time and also ended up as head of governance at Dimensional Fund Advisors eventually. And then uh, obviously had the good fortune to meet you and, and Don and the rest of the team at ICR. And here I am. Yeah, well, we're thankful that you came aboard. Sitting here with a thousand clients, uh, probably over seven hundred of those public, you're obviously in dialogue with them all the time and solving their challenges as it relates to ESG. If you had to characterize a typical conversation that you have, what are companies, public companies in particular, what are they struggling with? What are they missing? What's a common thread? in what everyone's asking you to kind of analyze or help them with. Like you said, with ESG kind of being a catalyst right now for massive capital reallocation, you know, every company is interested in, you know, how to tap into that capital. When I have the initial conversation with companies, typically they come to our team with a little bit of a defensive posture. I mean, what do I mean by that? So when we're kind of thinking about newer companies, these management teams are typically interested in how do we not get dinged by rating agencies and start getting scored so that we can start landing on some of these uh, radars to, you know, because of our anti-takeover devices in our statutes, our directors are going to get voted against by a lot of these institutional investors. How can I prevent that? For me, for our clients, you know, it's very important for, you know, ICR to let them know ESG in this era should really be considered a tool for offense. And what, what do I mean by that? And I think the best example, you know, are two letters from State Street CEO and BlackRock CEO. They have some common themes, but one thing that's kind of front and center is that they consider ESG from value and not values perspective, right? And Larry Fink, you know, he made the same comment, right? He said... You know, we're into stakeholder capitalism, not because we're woke or we're moral or ethical, but this is just good way of seeking profits by seeking beneficial relationships between you, employees, customers, suppliers, and communities. And I tell all companies, 
you probably have a lot of this in place. You haven't started talking about it. And I started talking about how they can start articulating this. Obviously, there's some know-how involved leveraging SASB framework or TCFD framework, which I can get into later down the line. But, you know, you already have a lot of the factors. It's just a matter of putting together and actually knowing how to talk about it and knowing when and how and to whom you can talk to at, at investors. And I think the real differentiator in, you know, how we do it at ICR you know, as opposed to other ESG consulting firms, we don't forget the G part of ESG. So we extend the ESG disclosure program and strategy to helping them actually reach into some of these, you know, big passive funds, for example, who can be a little bit difficult to get into if you're smaller companies. You know, we take independent directors, CEOs, directly to BlackRock, Vanguard, Wellington, Capital, T-Rose of the world, so they can start taking credit immediately. And we help them think about these things in incremental terms, in achievable timelines and milestones, and over the first hurdle, not to think about ESG purely from a defensive perspective, but on offense, you know, that is something that I have to fundamentally shift from the first conversation. Yeah, it's clear to me that the ESG and the investor stories are quickly merging because at the end of the day, doing the right things on ESG is about attracting capital. Taking a step back, Lyndon, most companies, you know, are trying to do the right thing kind of from my seat, but particularly smaller companies, you know, they look at these big, huge global mega caps. Uh, they have massive glossy reports and big departments with resources allocated to all of this. A lot of smaller, fast-growing companies don't, and they have so many other priorities, it's difficult for them to get organized. And they might think, hey, we're not doing anything. But the reality is most of them are doing things, but they're just not organizing it and talking about it because maybe they think they've got to be great at it right away. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I think you put your you know finger on the pulse of the issue here, right? They already have elements of these things in place. They're not talking about it. And that points to, you know, what some people might consider as a problematic element of the ESG industry. If you don't disclose what you're doing, you automatically get assigned the lowest rating. That's the fact. So, you know, for influential ESG rating agencies such as MSCI, Sustainalytics, if you don't do anything, but you have a great internal operational ESG program, like you focus on incentivizing and motivating your talent, you think about diversity in a thoughtful way, you think about supply chain issues in the matter that's relevant to your business and that benefits your stakeholders, if you don't talk about it and disclose that, you will automatically get an F, right? So I think, you know, what kinds of resources can you dedicate to it? To be frank, with a lot of first-time kind of newer public companies, they don't have any kind of assigned ESG or sustainability officer, let alone a team. So quite often, it's usually kind of the CFO or the IR head that's tackling this issue. And for us, you know, the interest is when they first kind of tackle the year one, they need to know what they do. We also set goals 24 to 36 months out. You have to, we, we conduct a gap analysis and we, we let them know you have to focus in these areas. And, you know, we are very pleasantly surprised. A lot of our year two companies, they've added certain resources or reallocated their human capital in such a way that they, they can focus on a lot of the kind of key 
you know, KPIs, collecting data, and they've sort of been taking their training wheels off. And, you know, our ambition is exactly that. Help these companies think about these issues incrementally in achievable bites so that, you know, they can start standing up and start running on their own. And uh, we can provide that kind of, you know, guidance as necessary. You know, if I'm thinking about a public company on the investor relations side, it's really all about managing expectations and setting long-term goals. I think what we are advising companies to do is look five years out, set some goals, and then update us on those goals, much like you would do in IR, right? Is that really what we're saying here? And then as a follow-up, how do we tactically package that up for companies so they can distribute that message to the people that count. There's a lot to unpack there. If, if there's any one takeaway, you know, from this conversation, and this is the one that I want companies to remember. A lot of times when I see companies having issues on ESG or proxy votes or investor-related issues, they're usually kind of silo thinking and organization. IR, corporate secretarial teams, comms, sustainability groups, they all kind of play in different silos and they're not connecting the dots. The fact of the matter is ESG has converged with proxy governance, shareholder activism. And if you look at, again, referencing Larry Fink's letter or State Street letter, there are always attendant consequences on director elections at annual meetings for these companies if they don't do certain things. So for example, you know, State Street was very clear Um, If you don't have, starting next year, 2023, if you don't have at least 30% women on your board, they're going to vote against nominating governance chair. Back in July, we helped the company defend against an activist. And this wasn't like a landmark Exxon, you know, engine number one fight or anything like that. But this was a typical company in the retail sector. And the activists, the whole time they were thinking, you know, they were talking about selling the company, improving operations, kicking out some directors. All of a sudden, they had an ESG campaign. You know, they came out with a fight deck that was just about ESG, so they're weaponizing ESG as well. All these things are kind of converging into one place, and our task is to kind of educate companies in terms of why these factors are converging and how to deal with it. Companies typically think in terms of targets and metrics like EBITDA, year-to-year goals. Should we think about kind of setting five-year goals and targets and, you know, I think the more important part of the question is that how do you relate kind of your ESG story to, you know, some of the strategic goals in that kind of five-year plan? So let's say a company has a five-year plan to get to like one billion in top line by, you know, 2025. All companies must also inspect and assess what kinds of improvements that they can make on these ESG fronts and start attaching targets to it. You know, net zero pledges, more and more companies are doing it, diversity and inclusion targets. And the quickest way to increase your ratings is set demonstrable targets and start hitting them. And if you overlay that over strategy, you know, it sort of satisfies what we just articulated earlier in that both BlackRock, State Street, and other investors, they're looking at ESG from the value perspective and not values perspective. So if you correlate that strategy articulation over the long term, how it generates value to how ESG undergirds that effort and is a part of that value creation strategy, that is the best way to look at, you know, how ESG plays into any strategy of a company. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, it just seemed to me, having done this for a long time, over 20 years, the activist campaigns kind of 1.0 was capital allocation, 2.0 was kind of governance, and 3.0 is ESG, as you say, weaponizing ESG in an activist campaign. Life is uh, complicated enough as the senior management team of a public company. This is another area where your flank is open, so you better be paying attention and you better get help to protect that flank. I wanted to pivot. There's so many standards out there in terms of either being rated or what companies have to follow. Where are things going in terms of the standards and and the consolidation of those kind of rating entities? It is consolidating primarily around SASB. So, you know, that stands for Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. It is, as simply put, a measure of kind of what the sector relevant KPIs are for ESG. So this is going to look different for an oil and gas company, from a tech company to a biotech company. The good news for companies is that it's more manageable than, say, uh, more comprehensive and sweeping ESG frameworks like GRI, which had been previous to SASB, kind of a de facto standard for large cap companies that were reporting pursuant to GRI, that's Global Reporting Initiative, because rather than focusing on, say, you know, 40 or 50 ESG issues, SASB, for some sectors, is less than a half dozen topics that they need to focus on. But as I said, this is the floor of kind of ESG frameworks. And in, in fact, again, kind of hearkening back to State Street and BlackRock letters, more so than SASB, both CEOs at these investment companies they're recommending reporting that is more consistent with TCFD because now their focus areas are on net zero transition and how companies and boards are managing this transition to kind of low carbon economy and climate risk management. And TCFD is Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. This typically requires, if you want to do it soup to nuts, climate scenario analysis and running data and metrics and disclosing on what the findings are. But as you can surmise, you know, a lot of the new public companies, they're not quite yet in place to do fulsome TCFD disclosures. But there are ways to start thinking about ESG framework using TCFD. And this is, in fact, what the investors recommend. Don't just use TCFD framework for climate risk, but do it for ESG risk. TCFD framework, simply put, they look at four pillars. It's how do you look at climate risk and let's kind of by proxy say ESG risk through four pillars. One is corporate governance. Number two, risk management. Number three, corporate strategy. And number four, data and metrics, right? And that's scope one, two, three analysis, carbon tracking and scenario planning related disclosures. But we always advise clients, chances are likely that you're already looking at some of your key ESG risks and opportunities using those three pillars. All board and management look at, for example, cybersecurity through those pillars of governance, strategy, and risk management, right? And to the point that, you know, audit committee usually has SOCs and internal controls protocols around these issues, you know, we encourage companies to leverage the framework they already have, start thinking about ESG through these three frameworks, and eventually start expanding that out to cover climate risk pursuant to TCFD. Again, the name of the game here is incrementalism. If you're not in place to do a fulsome TCFD disclosure, start thinking about ESG 
still within those framework and then incrementally augment your disclosure and include the, the, the climate related stuff. You know, many of our clients at different stages of their life cycle look to us for ESG advice, whether it's around shareholder activism, proxy season, or simply an investor day. But there's another important area where ESG can have a big impact on public perception, and that's an IPO. I asked Lyndon how companies should be thinking about ESG before and during an IPO and what kind of support they might need. The short answer is a lot of companies know what they are as an ESG company, but they're only thinking about the business impact of ESG. So if they have a EV business, for example, or a kind of more sustainable business, you know, that's related to profit building and seeking, they only think about the leading edge of the ESG story. But investors, they focus more on the operational aspect of it. And that's where companies get lost. Where we come in, our ESG team plugs into the whole process. We work very closely with external counsel on drafting the ESG language into S1 or S4. In cases of SPACs, we run a data collection, do a quick gap analysis, and we help them figure out you know, what kind of alignment they have with these frameworks and how to tell the story about some of the internal and operational aspects of ESG. It could be human capital management to supply chain issues that also correspond with kind of rest of the message in terms of what their business is in the prospectus. And we don't stop there. We provide a blueprint for these companies to think about ESG in a way. We build out the Q&A sheets for the CEOs and boards to contemplate and start thinking about these frameworks. And in fact, you know, a lot of these clients, they become our year one clients because they have a elevated need once they're public to disclose on these issues. And we help them think through this process, help them execute and produce ESG disclosures, talk with their top investors about it, and create a sticky relationship between their top investors as well as other potential ones down the line. So in fact, in year two and year three, we do connect you know, a lot of our clients with you know, more ESG-focused funds. So we help them think through all these issues. One area that I think is super interesting, and ESG is not just for public companies, maybe talk a little bit about the private equity channel, the challenges they face, and what professionally backed companies need to do to set themselves up for an exit of any kind and what you see when you have conversations with the private equity community. Yeah, I, I think even more so than public spheres, um, in the private space, you know, it, it's more of a cowboy land. There's lack of standardization. Currently, there's a push by, I, I believe it was CalPERS or CalSTRS. Um, they're trying to standardize, you know, ESG metrics, you know, which is a tall order. For private companies, simply put, you know, a lot of the ESG activity is based on due diligence. As you mentioned, some of the target companies for investments, exit strategies, these require due diligence efforts. And, you know, the LPs as well as investors, now they're seeking ESG as a core element of this, especially for companies in the late, you know, latter stages of growth, thinking about exit strategy. Some of the more thoughtful investors are thinking about, is this company going to be competitive and attractive in the public spheres, public markets, where investors are very, very focused on ESG. So when we have these conversations, and in fact, we do have a couple of private company clients for whom we've set up 
you know, ESG websites run the data analysis and gap analysis and helping them actually build their initial first year report, ESG report, that is commensurate to the level of what public company year one reports are looking like so that it can attract more investors in their funding rounds. I think even more important than that is every GP of a private equity company, they need to think about even before there's some kind of a standardization through some private ordering, which may never come, how they're articulating their oversight of ESG and their portfolio companies, what they're reporting into them so that they can report back to their investors and LPs what they're doing. So creating that framework is actually the crux of a lot of these GPs' concerns, and we help them figure that and frame that out. When you look out over the next decade, what do you see in terms of ESG? What's your take on the future as you kind of look into your crystal ball? More and more, I think regulatory issues will be the catalyst that drives ESG. I think climate change issues, even compared to five, six years ago, there are less naysayers than people who are acknowledging it as a fact regulators have embraced it. Of course, through every elections, you know, tides will change and turn, but general movement, even without regulatory kind of intervention, through private ordering by investors and issuers, we're headed to a space where net zero transition, low carbon economy has become a force that is generating a lot of capital and movements and allocation. And how I see it coming from the investor background ESG goes where the money goes, and it's already heading to that kind of a future where companies, as well as investors, are looking for more sustainability, more responsibility in Larry Fink's kind of term. He calls it stakeholder capitalism. We're already in that world. I think it's only going to accelerate, and it'll also be abetted by a lot of the regulatory changes coming down the line. We have a mega cap oil and gas company, and it's an existential crisis for them right now because some of the investors who are openly backing them, supporting them. And mind you, this company has a great net zero, low carbon strategy. Even so, they're in kind of a crisis where certain investors are thinking about these issues from a divestment perspective, and they don't understand the nuances of how an oil and gas company could fit into this economy. I expect this to cascade into other sectors as well in many different ways. And I think the Best defense is offense. That's my motto. And every company, they need to think about these issues proactively, get in front of the investors and start addressing these and articulate their strategy in a very compelling manner. There's no question the ESG bus has left the station. For companies who are ready to take the ride, their investment story and ESG story are quickly merging. That requires integrated communications and tactics across all stakeholder groups to get the message out. As Lyndon said, when you stop playing defense against ESG, you can start using it as a tool with a powerful offensive potential. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks again to Lyndon Park for joining me on the show today. 
This is important stuff that speaks to the heart of valuation, reputation, and credibility. We'll see you next time, back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.